opening reading, the opening reading this morning is from Exile and Pride by Eli Clare. The mountain as metaphor looms large in the lives of the marginalized people, people whose bones get crushed in the grind of capitalism, patriarchy, white supremacy. How many of us have struggled up the mountain, measured ourselves against it, failed up there, lived in its shadow? We've hit our heads on glass ceilings, tried to climb the class ladder, lost fights against assimilation, scrambled toward the phantom called normality. We heard from the summit that the world is grand from up there, that we live down here at the bottom because we are lazy, stupid, weak, and ugly. We decided to climb that mountain or make a pact that our children will climb it. The climbing turns out to be unimaginably difficult. We are afraid. Every time we look ahead, we can find nothing remotely familiar or comfortable. We lose the trail. Our wheelchairs get stuck. We speak the wrong languages with the wrong accents, wear the wrong clothes, carry our bodies the wrong way, ask the wrong questions, love the wrong people. And it's goddamn lonely up there on the mountain. We decide to stop climbing and build a new house right where we are. Or we decide to climb back down to the people we love, where the food, the clothes, the dirt, the sidewalk, the steaming asphalt under our feet, our crutches, all feel right. Or we find the path again, decide to continue climbing only to have the very people who told us how wonderful life is at the summit booby-trap the trail. Maybe we get to the summit, but probably not. And the price we pay is huge. Up there on the mountain, we confront the external forces, the power brokers who benefit so much from the status quo and their privileged, privileged position at the very summit. But just as vividly, we come face to face with our own bodies, all that we cherish and despise, all that lies embedded there. This I know because I have caught myself lurching up the mountain. I invite you to join in our opening song. Though days be dark with storms and burdens weigh my heart, though troubles wait at every turn, I know I can go.
can go on. And though the journey is long, the destination is near. Though troubles take my hand and sisters sing my song when hope awaits at every turn I know we will go Welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. I'm Zeb Green, the clergy intern here, and my pronouns are he and him. I'm so glad to have you here this morning, whether in the room or joining us on Facebook. Visitors and guests, we hope that you got a blue name tag so we know who you are and can welcome you and answer any questions you might have. We all love talking about this community and why it's so important to us and we'd like to hear from you about what you're looking for. We hope you'll join us after the platform service for coffee and cookies in the lobby and social hall. And also please consider sharing your email with us on the gold sheet in the program so we can add you to our mailing list. You can drop it in the collection basket as it passes later in the platform service. I want to remind everyone to please silence your electronic devices so you can be fully present this morning. And while you have your phones out, we'd love it if you could check in on social media. I'd now like to invite Shayla to read our statement of purpose so that we might hear our values in each other's voices. Mike, yes. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for a world where love and justice cross all borders. Thank you. As Shayla lights our community candle, I invite you all to join me in the candle lighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. Each week, we ring this bell in solidarity with people around the world. 
especially this week, we hold in our hearts the lives lost and forever changed in the Parkland shooting in Florida. And to all those who rely on the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, to protect their civil rights. As we listen to the chime, let us remind, let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in the world. And let us commit ourselves to all that call for our work and for our love. As we enter a time of meditation, I invite you to center yourselves in your seats as I read some words from Sonia Renee Taylor in the book, The Body is Not an Apology. I have never seen a toddler lament the size of their thighs or the squishiness of their bellies. Children do not arrive here ashamed of their race, gender, age, or disabilities. Babies love their bodies. Each discovery they encounter is freaking awesome. Have you ever seen an infant realize that they have feet? Talk about wonder. That is what an unobstructed relationship with our bodies looks like. You were an infant once, which means there was a time when you thought your body was freaking awesome too. Connecting to that memory may feel as distant as the furthest star it might not be a memory you can access at all, but just knowing that there was a point in your history when you once loved your body can be a reminder that body shame is a fantastically crappy inheritance. We didn't give it to ourselves, and we are not obligated to keep it. We arrived on this planet as love. Hearing these words, I invite you to take a deep breath, Feel the air, fill your lungs, and look into your body. Past all the pain, the discomfort, past all the messaging telling you that you're not enough, and look with wonder and joy for that thing that gives you hope, that part of your body that is filled with love, and I invite you to connect with it here. No complaints and no regrets 
I still believe in chasing dreams and placing bets. But I have learned that all you give is all you get. So you give it all you got. I've had my share. I've drank my fill, and even though I'm satisfied, I hunger still to see what's down another road beyond the hill and do it all again. So here's to life To all the joys it brings So here's to life To dreamers and their dreams Funny how the time just flies How love can go from warm hellos To sad goodbyes To leave you with the memories You memorize To keep your winters warm For there's no yes in yesterday And who knows what tomorrow brings Or takes away As long as I'm still in the game I want to play For laughs, for life, for love So here's to life and all the joy it brings and here's to life to dreamers and their good 
get back is to life is to love and is to you Thank you, Nicole. This platform is going to primarily be stories from members of the congregation. And I just want to say I'm so touched that when I put out a request for people to tell stories about their bodies, how they change, and how they persevere, how many people came forward, how many people shared their stories. And I only apologize that I could not include them all. There's so much in this congregation, and I hope these conversations continue. This first story comes from an anonymous member of the congregation who wanted to share their voice but did not want their name uh, too vulnerable at the moment to share with everyone but wanted their story told. I open my eyes, and for just a few seconds, I forget. As long as I lay perfectly still, there is no pain, mostly. But inevitably, nature calls, and I have to get up. Anticipating the move, my back muscles start to freeze up. But I move anyway, and that's when the firestorm starts. And it's even worse if the room happens to be cold. Because nerve pain feels like the worst shivering your body's ever had, only you're not cold. And the pain is an immediate feeling, impossible to ignore. It would be so much easier to lay there in bed all day and avoid an hour and a half of this nerve storm just to get up. This part is embarrassing, but it is a part of being disabled. When a lot of nerves were cut and damaged, it also affected going to the bathroom. I often cannot tell until the last minute that it's an emergency. And when I wake up, it's always an emergency. Sometimes, often, I don't make it all the way to the bathroom. So just add complete indignity to all the pain. After having to get up quickly, I fall back down. At this point, I have to take medications that help with the nerve pain and relax the muscles. This is when I begin 30 to 45 minutes of self-torture. When nerves die, they don't feed the muscles the way they're supposed to. And your muscles start to contract on their own. I have several muscles that do that from my feet to my shoulders. I do stretches head to toe multiple rounds. Each one feels like sticking a needle in yourself. I do strength exercises. All of this just so I can get up and hopefully walk upright. Some days it works, some days not so much. Once your body has been damaged like this, it becomes an ongoing lifetime of self-physical therapy. It takes an incredible amount of discipline every day to do this. But I'm very motivated to stay upright and walking on my own. I can't imagine how people would go through this 
even just one day without landing in the emergency room. But for me, this is all standard operating procedure. Medical people use a pain scale of one to 10. To me, 10 is post-surgical. And I live at a constant two to three on a good day. A bad day is seven to eight. Think toe curling, unable to focus on anything, praying for daylight kind of pain. Getting back to getting up, after all those painful stretches and exercises, I finally convinced myself to swing my legs over the edge of the bed and attempt to stand up. If I do it too quickly, I fall over. My knees will buckle and I pitch forward. I have to stand up and stabilize myself with thoughts and intentions every time I stand. To stand up, I have to tighten every muscle in my belly as hard as I can and in my thighs and slowly straighten my back up amid a lot of muscle spasms. Remember, this is every day. On the days where I can almost stand up straight, that is a victory. Other days, I'm bent over for the first hour or so that I'm up, and it's only by sheer force of will and hard abdominal muscles that I can get upright at all. I have to repeat those stretches at night, too, in order to stay walking and look quote-unquote like a normal person. I have to put myself through a couple of hours of extra pain on top of the pain I already have. That discipline goes out the window if life is challenging or if my depression kicks in or if illness or another injury occurs. This situation is not my only major medical condition that I deal with, but it's the one that gets most of my attention. There are days when I lose this battle. I choose to stay flat on my back in bed, reading and resting, and to me, wasting a perfectly good day. I push and I push and try to be normal and have a normal life and go and do things and show up. So many times I'll try to go somewhere, get to the door, and realize that mind over matter will only get me so far. And then I collapse in the nearest chair and don't go out. Or if I do convince myself to get there, I'm terribly late because this body moves so slowly and unpredictably. I've been adjusting to this disability for a couple of years now, but I still fight the reality of it and keep thinking that this is going to get better. It has to get better. I keep throwing everything I have at it, but slowly I'm realizing this is my new normal. And I ask you, if this was you, would you get out of bed? I'm Dana Pope, and my pronouns are she and her. I'm fat, which you can tell by looking at me. And I have invisible disabilities, which I'll talk about a little bit later. First, I want to talk about fatness. I am a fat liberation activist. I use the word fat for myself, at a minimum, as a neutral physical descriptor, like tall or brunette. At its best, fat is something that I can love and appreciate about myself and others. Fat people are oppressed and discriminated against. There are ways that stereotypes that people have about fatness add up to systemic oppression. 
Fat people are thought of as lazy, smelly, dirty, and lacking in motivation and self-control. So when a fat person goes to a job interview, often they aren't hired because subconsciously the interviewer thinks these things and doesn't think that a fat person can do a good job. When we are hired, we make less money than our thinner counterparts. The best part is, is that this is legal to discriminate based on fatness or appearance. Okay, so think about the last time you went to the doctor or the hospital. Did you have trouble fitting into the chairs in the waiting room? How about the hospital gowns? The wheelchairs? Were you told that they couldn't perform a procedure because the weight limit of the table wasn't high enough? I've had all of these things and more happen to me in just the last two years. When I needed the first in what became a series of MRIs, I had to call 18 different places before I found one that would fit me. I had so many people, including at some of these offices, ask, what about open MRIs? That would possibly help with my claustrophobia, but open MRIs have weaker magnets that would not be able to scan my kidneys well enough for my doctor. Only an open bore MRI would work. Fat phobia or fat oppression is rife in the medical field, and most doctors are either unfamiliar with the related research and or still push ineffective and harmful weight loss. The research shows that about 95% of the fat people who intentionally starve themselves, which is what dieting is, will regain the weight that they lost plus more. A fat person who has dieted has a different metabolism than the same size fat person who has never dieted. But doctors don't seem to know this. Fat people I know have been told by doctors that their weight is to blame for everything from ear infections to congenital disabilities. There are times that necessary treatment is withheld until a fat patient loses a certain amount of weight. Thin people are never told that in order to be healthier, they need to have a healthy organ partially amputated, which is what so-called weight loss or gastric bypass surgery is. That's what it does to a fat person's stomach. There is a real risk of death with this surgery, which is rarely discussed. And I can't tell you how many people I know who have been told that they can't get joint replacement surgery done because it's too risky, but the same doctor recommends that they have surgery to partially amputate their stomach. I went to a gynecologist because I had had a few irregular periods in a row last year. He suggested weight loss surgery four times over the two appointments, despite me telling him that it wasn't going to happen. My urogynecologist told me that I should lose weight because there would be less pressure on my bladder. That is a statement wholly unsupported by the research, according to a nutritionist I consulted with. One of the things I learned about in graduate school, which pertains to both fatness and disability, is something called the social model of disability. The medical model is what we are most familiar with. It says that there is something wrong with the individual and that that person needs to be treated or changed until they get closer to what is considered normal. The social model describes how we as society make decisions about who and how to accommodate. For example, there was nothing automatic that meant stairs were going to be the default way of getting from one floor to another. It could have been ramps, but decisions were made, and now people who can't use stairs are seen as needing special accommodations, when in fact, none of us can fly up from the ground floor. 
This model explains how it is these decisions which disable people and puts the onus for changing onto the group rather than the individual. This doesn't mean that disabled people shouldn't or don't want to have medical treatments. No one wants to have chronic pain. It does mean that we shouldn't be forced to have treatments which are mostly trying to make us more normal. I mentioned before that I have invisible disabilities, so you wouldn't know any of this by looking at me. I have what, for the moment, my doctors are calling Meniere's disease. This means that I have discrete episodes of vertigo, tinnitus, ringing in the ears, reduced hearing, and a feeling of fullness in my ears. It is progressive. In the last two years, I've gone from having a mild hearing loss in my right ear to a severe, profound loss. I have also had tinnitus in that ear the whole time. I also have a condition called interstitial cystitis. Basically, it's described as when the lining of the bladder has worn away. Its cause is unknown, and there is no known cure. There are people who treat the symptoms and find that it eventually goes away, but many, many people have it for decades. It affects women more often and has been studied very little. It seems like I might might possibly be one of the luckier ones. The change in my symptom has, symptoms has been very gradual, um, and it's hard to notice from day to day the difference. But when it was worse, I felt like I had a knife stabbing me in the urethra and sandpaper grinding in my bladder for hours at a time. That still happens, but not as often. I also have depression and anxiety, which I've had for most of my life. I have actually come to appreciate my depression in a way that I would have thought impossible a decade ago. A significant factor in a major depression for me is that I have been ignoring my body and my needs to the point where it decides it's going to make me pay attention. My biggest issues with my depression these days are that society doesn't see it as valid if I can't work for weeks at a time or that I suddenly need help performing basic tasks of living. I'm still working on loving my anxiety. I want to close by quoting Reagan Chastain from her blog called Dances with Fat. I am sure she would agree that this quote applies to disability as much as fatness. Health is a complicated, multifaceted concept. Health is not an obligation, a barometer of worthiness, entirely within our control, or guaranteed under any circumstances. Nobody owes anybody else health or healthy behaviors by any definition. Fat people have the right to exist in fat bodies without shame, stigma, bullying, or oppression. And it doesn't matter why we are fat, what being fat means for our health, if we could become thin, or if doing so would make us healthier by some definitions. The right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are not size or health dependent. This next story comes from Joe Klein, a member of our congregation. Your post about invisible disability really struck a chord with me. I have OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, which is an anxiety disorder that involves thinking, looping, recurring, troubling thoughts. 
my OCD is much better managed now than in the past, but it's something that I've dealt with my whole life. And although it's certainly invisible, it can feel quite debilitating. There have been many times for extended periods of time, I feel like I should get an award just for getting out of bed and going on with my life. Over the past year, both through cognitive behavioral therapy and my own reading and exploration, I feel like I've developed a set of better tools for living with this particular brain, a brain that has benefited me in many ways, but in other ways, I would gladly swap for someone else's. There are a few insights that have been quite useful for me in navigating life with OCD. One thing that's been very helpful has just been to reframe having OCD as living with a chronic condition. I'd actually never thought about it this way. I always wanted to fix or solve it, and for then, it, for then to just go away. But reframing it as a chronic thing that I live with that needs to be managed on an ongoing basis with various tools somehow made it much easier. I've had this thing forever. It's not going to get solved. And it's just much easier to recognize that it's the challenge, the ongoing thing that I have to grapple with, and what is overall a very privileged life. It also means that when I'm having a flare-up, it's easier to sort of say, oh, well, this is happening because I have this chronic condition, and some days this just happens. I don't have to worry about it so much. A second tool that I found helpful has been reading has been some reading I've done around the concepts of Buddhism as explored through a secular lens. At the core of Buddhism is the notion that in life there is suffering and that suffering is caused by a desire for reality to be other than it is and by an attachment to some narrative about how things should be. The way to end suffering in Buddhism is to accept reality as it actually is. And I found this very helpful, both in universalizing suffering, welcome to the club, we all suffer, and also in recognizing that so much of suffering really just has to do with the narrative in our head rather than an objective reality. A lot of the application of cognitive behavioral therapy to OCD has to do, has to do with forcing the OCD sufferer to parse more clearly the difference between the thoughts that are so troubling to them, the inner narrative that is often totally unrealistic, and compared to the objective, logic-based reality. So this key tenet of Buddhism aligned very closely with a tool I already knew from therapy. Both reframing OCD as a chronic condition and this Buddhist focus on distinguishing distinguishing between reality and narrative are helpful in dealing with one of the aspects of anxiety that I find the most unpleasant, which is the physical sensation, primarily psychosomatic, but distracting nonetheless of heart palpitations. My therapist kept asking me why it was so bad that I experienced these palpitations. And I would say, because it's tiring, it's distracting, and it doesn't feel good, and I don't like it. And he kept saying, and what's so bad about that? And we kept going around and round in this discourse, and he kept pushing me on the question. And finally I thought, maybe it's not actually so bad. 
Maybe the narrative is that it's bad and I don't like it. And the objective reality is that this just is. It's just a thing that happens. Like any other physical reality, like being hot or cold. And maybe it just happens because I have this chronic condition. And that just is what it is. Maybe I don't need to feel so bad about it and can instead just say, I'm having heart palpitations. This is objectively happening. This is just the reality. No story, no good. It's just a thing that happens. It can still be hard to remember in the heat of the moment when I'm in a state of great anxiety to use these tools, but it's very comforting to know that even in the background that they exist and that they're helpful. It's also comforting to know that this condition doesn't need to be solved. It's my lifelong companion and that all around me, everyone else is grappling with their thing and figuring out how to live with their own lifelong companions. Good morning. My name is Audrey Grip, and my pronouns are she, her, hers, they, them, theirs. I've been sick as long as I can remember. It's hard. Every day, in a hundred different ways, it's hard. But I keep going. Body not doing what it's supposed to? Try this surgery, that medication, or this treatment, and keep going. Injuries not healing like they should? Joke about it, keep going. Am I gonna pass out if I stand up right now? Stand, hold on to the cabinet, pause. Did my vision come back? Good, can I put weight on my right side? Good, keep going. Did anyone notice this time? Starting as a small child, for each new malady, there was a doctor to tell me it's normal, or at least common, or that there was nothing medically relevant about my experience, nothing wrong with me. You'll grow out of it, take Advil, keep going. Sometimes in puddles of defeat, I would ask myself, how does everyone else do it? How do all of these people hold down full-time jobs get through college or grad school even, or just get through the day completing all the things that they had planned to do. Was I really this lazy? Why couldn't I do it? How do people stop being this lazy? I had to push myself harder. I found inspiration where I could. A particular favorite for years was the Benjamin Franklin quote, Never leave till tomorrow that which you can do today. Could I do it? Then do it. I can collapse later. I spent years dissociating from my body, from my pain. I had to in order to keep going. See the chiropractor, the pain specialist, the physical therapist, report the new pains, try the new meds, new procedures. 
Every time I failed to get something done, I'd get more frustrated. Why couldn't I just get out and do that thing? Why hadn't I gotten this thing done yet? I'm doing everything they're telling me to do. I would get more and more frustrated, push myself harder, but keep going. A year and a half ago, I learned that a particular co that particular coping mechanism wasn't working any longer. A year and a half ago, my pain got a lot worse. This particular pain that had been periodic pinched nerves and muscle spasms taking only hours of my life at a time became unending, debilitating pain with tremors and numbness. I could barely walk, even with my cane. I went to the ER by ambulance in the middle of the night, unstable or unable to sleep or keep down either food or pills. When the first dose of pain meds wore off, I told them the nerve pain was coming back, and unbearably so. They told me I was mistaken, that I was only there for a UTI, and that I was being discharged. An attendant helped me dress and move into a wheelchair. I was sobbing. I sat in the waiting room in tears. I didn't understand. I didn't know what was happening or why. The next few days were a muddled series of naps, phone calls, and medication. My mom, stepmom, and dad coordinated care and made plans. But my mom was in Chicago, and my dad and stepmom had to get back to work. I must have posted something on Facebook because Amanda called. Boggy-headed, I answered. How was I coping? Not well, I think. Would I like her to send a caring news memo to the congregation? Sure, yes, I would. Would I like some assistance? Meals, rides? Yes, was that really available? She set me up with a pastoral care associate. It took me two months to get back to work and another four before I was regularly walking without my cane. I learned to ask for help. I got rides to and from doctor's appointments, physical therapy, and the grocery store. I got visitors, too. And somewhere in there, I got diagnoses. Real medical validation. After almost 30 years of pain and doctors. Diagnoses, hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, a genetic disorder of the connective tissue characterized by overly flexible joints and widespread musculoskeletal pain. Postural orthostatic tachycardic syndrome, or POTS, where my heart rate jumps to 150 beats per minute or maybe more when I stand up. Mast cell activation disorder. Basically, I'm allergic to most things. <sighs> These days, I try to think of my body as a sick friend, my best friend, 
we go everywhere together. And we don't get to go anywhere or do anything when one of us is sick. So I have to keep this friend of mine well. In order to do that, I have to learn as much as I can about them, listen as much as possible to them, and check in regularly, especially if something seems off. And often it means I have to slow down or stop what I'm doing, sometimes just for now, sometimes forever. Some things are no longer meant for me. There are lessons in letting go. One thing's for sure, I can't do this by myself. Oh 
and mysteries do unfold for that's the way of time nothing and no one goes unchanged there are not many things in life you can be sure Except rain comes from the clouds, sun lights up the sky, and hummingbirds do fly. Everything must change. Thank you, Nicole, for your music, Dana and Audrey for your stories. This is the time in our platform service where the rest of the congregation can share their thoughts, reflections, or stories. I see one hand already. Please introduce